Welcome to the Places Plus podcast. I'm your host, Alan Cameron. In this podcast, we'll step into the world of shared and public spaces where you'll learn the strategies, tactics, and attitude to become profitably and successfully involved in the in-between spaces of our towns and cities. Hi, everyone. It's Alan Cameron here, and welcome to another episode of the Places Plus podcast. Today, I'm excited to have James Delaney joining us. James, welcome. Thanks, Alan. Now, James, in terms of your work, uh, you're a contemporary artist working in print, charcoal, paint, photography, and sculpture from your studio at Victoria Yards in Johannesburg, South Africa. And your work has been shown in over 50 group and solo exhibitions in South Africa, the US, England, and France over the last 20 years. And when you're not working full-time as an artist, you find yourself working at a place called The Wilds. Um, this is voluntary, um, and uh, and this is really what we're going to be speaking about today. But before we kick off and and talk about the wilds a bit more, I'd like to ask you, James, where did your interest in public space come from? I think my interest in public space evolved through the wilds. Uh, my interest was more in plants, um, and the wilds is a forty-acre nature reserve planted entirely with South African indigenous plants. So it's quite an amazing space in terms of plant life. And when I started working there to look after the plants, then I realized that people were a very important part of that process. And so that got me thinking about public space and how to activate it to make it relevant. And so it grew from there. Pardon the pun about growing. So are you saying that when you when you started at the wilds, it was less relevant for people? How how what is what did you find when you when you went into the wilds for the first time, this 40-acre park? So I would say it was it was almost completely irrelevant to the people of Joburg. They viewed it as something that belonged to the past and was no longer of relevance. Um, they viewed it as being unsafe and in and poorly kept and um, and a welcoming place to go. Um, the condition I found it in was really just badly overgrown and the infrastructure in, in poor condition. There was a, a small city park team working there who had been working there for a long time who were mowing the lawns and doing some, some basic kind of keeping it clean activities, but without any kind of vision or proper supervision they no longer had any horticulturalists on site um, and so it had been really neglected by by management um, and and when people stop looking after a place and people stop visiting it then it just kind of just returns to nature um, and and becomes irrelevant um, for you know for the city dwellers around it Yes, it sure. was quite interesting because it had, been, it had been planted up over about 90 years and hundreds of trees and thousands of flowering plants and things. Um, and in about the last, I suppose, the preceding 20 or 25 years where it had been so neglected, the forest had really taken over and, and, and produced some really beautiful results. These crazy vines growing up through the forest canopy and trees really growing big and the, the forest, the, the deep forest shade developing its own ecosystem, microclimate, uh, the soils improving with the, the falling leaves over the years. So it had, it had 
really being taken over by nature in, in a very beautiful and wild way. So for me, the, the voyage of discovery of this wildly overgrown garden or park was, was really exciting. Um, but I had to hack, hack away through the jungle to, to make sense of it and, and to allow many of the plants to, to recover. Um, it had been planted as a, as a park for sun-loving plants because it's hilly, sun-exposed copies. But with the growth of forest, many of those plants had died and the forest floor was bare or taken over by weeds. So there was a lot of work to do. I, I hear that, a significant amount of work. Um, tell me, when you, when you ventured in and you, you discovered the municipal parks uh, maintenance team on site, um, did, did you develop a relationship with them? How did that relationship develop, I suppose? And, um, and how did you find it was working in the same area that they were also busy working in? Well, I had to prove to them that I had good intentions and that what I was doing would be to the benefit of the park and the plants. And I found communication with the authorities pretty difficult. Um, so I just started working. And then when they could see the results, then they started cooperating more. And and I really made a big effort to to build that relationship. I sponsored lunches for their staff and I had talks to explain to them what I was doing and I provided sponsorship for equipment. Um, I invited over and over again the management to come and see what I was doing. I engaged them about signing a formal agreement and eventually they did. They signed a park adoption agreement with me. So I formally adopted the wilds um, and in theory I was supposed to engage with them about all the projects that I did, but I find that didn't really work because the management was absent. So I just forged forged ahead, um, and you know did that for quite a few years. Um, it's kind of crazy that that a private individual can take over such a big park. It's forty acres, yes. um, but it was yes. a it was a yeah it was wonderful because it gave me freedom and authority to be able to to do what was required, and also. To be able to figure it out because it wasn't obvious what needed to get done. I didn't want to damage the ecosystem. Um, I wanted to work with it, work with nature. And in order to do that, you've kind of got to get your hands dirty and and get stuck in and and learn about the fungi and the soils and the the way the water falls during storms and all these different aspects. Um, so I could start making real improvements. Definitely sounds like a, a job that required you to roll up your sleeves. Coming back Definitely. to that, coming back to the the arrangement that you um, struck with the municipality, they they had a team that was present. It wasn't a large team, um, but I'm confident the management knew full well that it had been left to rewild itself. And having seen your work, um, they obviously we're able to trust your intentions and this trust was hard won. What is, what is the nature of the agreement? Um, how, what sort of permissions does it give you? And you said that you, you may not have informed them of every uh, project that you undertook in that space. How did, I'm assuming that there was a type of a laissez, the laissez-faire attitude continued 
uh, once you'd um, had this formal agreement. Um, so I'd love to just hear about the relationship um, kind of um, in securing the agreement, what the agreement uh, gave you a formal permission to do and how you've been able to use the flexibility given by the agreement to continue your work at the park. Um, yeah, the, the agreement is a, is, a, is a funny thing. Well, the, well, the initial agreement doesn't exist anymore because they retracted it and we've been waiting about two years to sign a new agreement. Um, so i am operated probably about, I don't know, five or six years under that agreement, I think. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it gave me authority to do things, but it also required me to report to management, but management was absent. So, like, what do you do? You know, if management won't come to a meeting, you know, well, I just I just carried on working. Um, you know, I'd say, look, this is what I'm doing and keep on going. Um, and, and I found kind of I was operating within a management vacuum, basically, that um, the, the parks management um, had, had, had neglected their duties and didn't seem to be interested much in re-engaging. Uh, um, so it's, it's been quite tricky. So I work very closely with the people on the ground um, and teaching them and working with them and making the improvements and fundraising so that I could support the work they were doing too. Um, but I kind of stepped into the role basically of being the park manager in the, in the absence of anybody else. Um, so I was the one who then designed the signage and got water features working again and fixed the park benches and, you know, kind of bigger infrastructure. So my work went beyond much beyond the plants to fixing up all the other aspects of it, you know, even down to putting it onto Google Maps and starting the Facebook page and all, all the related marketing for the park. Um, yeah, I just, I just took it on. Nobody else was doing it. Um, it's, and it's still really much, much the case now. It, what what I found with with the, the with city parks is that I suppose like any organisation, it's a collection of individuals, and some of those individuals are helpful and some are not. Um, so I've developed relationships with the individuals who are helpful, um, and I, I, I try to work as closely as I can with them. Um, and then the obstructive people, I just try to avoid. Um, just and, a, a bit of a tightrope to get through it all. I'm sure, especially. Um, well, having said that, um, often if if a if a person has limited interest in getting involved in a project, they they won't appear at meetings and they won't hopefully interfere. In some of the the reading that you sent me, you spoke about um, discovering that park benches are supposed to be green. Will you talk about that a little bit and? And um, and also your work, what you said about uh, painting the park benches, because you you didn't really go for green often, as far as I can tell. The kind of park benches is really neither here nor there. Like this is this you know petty bureaucrats trying to flex their, their power. Um, the park benches were largely broken, so we fixed them. Whether we paint them pink or green makes no difference. It's about having functional park benches. Um, this has happened a lot, I've found, with this um, inherited old kind of stuck-in-the-mud management approach is clinging to city bylaws, which I don't even know if they exist or not, um, and using those as the threat to uh, get in the way of progress. Another example is that 
apparently there's a bylaw saying you can't bring a camera into the wilds. So you get like young photography enthusiasts arriving at the car park and the guards won't let them in because they're carrying a camera. I mean, it's completely absurd when everybody has a camera on their phone. Um, so the park benches is much the same. Um, I just thought, hey, why don't we paint these in fun colours and people will notice them because I realised that not only were the park benches broken, but also because they're painted green and they're surrounded by foliage, people can't even see them, so they're not using them. So I got a friend of mine, Howard Shave, who owns a, um, a paint company, Shave Paints. Ask, I asked Howard if you could just mix us a whole bunch of crazy colours. So we did. We had a volunteer day or two and laid out all the colours and invited people to choose the colour which they're most connected with and go and take that and paint a bench. And everybody chose the brightest colours. They took the yellows and the oranges and the reds and the pinks and off they went into the bush and found these benches and gave them a new life. Um, and it's really worked well. And I've seen it being now copied in other parks around Joburg, which is really cool. Because uh, it brings it brings a pop of colour. Um, it, it, it draws attention to a nice place to sit and enjoy the view. And it also it helps to, to bring these spaces into a kind of contemporary use. You know, they were designed in the 1940s and 50s, you know, for a very different world. Um, and by by using colour in a fun way, it, it lightens the mood of the place. Um, and so the colour bench has actually been a, a great hit. Um, so, Certainly. Uh, yeah, been a great success. And uh, I'm curious as to your use of, um, of, of not just infrastructure improvements, but your use of art in the park. And I would love to hear how you drew inspiration from New York's Central Park. What, how did you find yourself in New York uh, when you went to Central Park? What types of things did you notice and how did you feel that you could apply those to the wilds? And then how did they start, how did they take shape on the ground? I, I spend time every year in New York. Um, I've been working in a printmaking studio in Midtown and I take a lot of photographs of doorways and architectural facades, which I use in my print work. So it's it's been for me an important part of my artistic process. Um, and I got to know Central Park because it's, it's such a, an important part of that city. Um, and then in reading about how that park had become abandoned in the 70s and 80s and how it had been fixed up by local residents banding together and raising funds and fixing it up, that, that gave me hope that we could do something similar with the wilds. I didn't realise at that time quite how far we could take the wilds, but you hear about Central Park in the 70s when the supermarket trolleys piled up in the water fountains and everything's broken and people don't want to walk there because it's not safe. Um, it sounded very much like <laughs> the wilds was 10 years ago. So I was like, well, damn, Central Park's even bigger, so they can do it, then, then we can too. And one of the things I learned from Central Park is that dog walkers are very important to recreating safety. And Central Park, they designated quite big areas which they allowed people to run their dogs off leash because the dogs will run through the undergrowth and flush out anybody who might be hiding. So that's a very clever idea. So I worked specifically on encouraging dog walkers to come to the wilds. And we have a very big base of them um, who are important because dog walkers are very regular walkers. Those dogs require a walk every single day. So there are 
people who come to the wilds every day at 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. And there they are walking around with their dog. So you know that at that time of day, it's cool to walk around because if there's ever a problem, there's some dogs around and, you know, bad people tend to be scared of dogs. So I, I borrowed that from Central Park. The art was a different thing. I didn't actually get that from there. I just got that from my head because I was struggling to find a way to engage people that they would come to the wilds and get over their fear because their their fear from the stories from two or three decades ago, that fear was so strong, they, they wouldn't believe me that the park was nuts. So I had to create a, a visual story which which they could see they could if they could see these images on social media and want to go to them and go and see that place then then we'd have visitors and so i came up with the idea of of doing these metal cut art sculptures uh, initially of owls so for mandela day 2017 i made 67 owls and we put them in a, in a yellowwood and bushwillow forest um, on the West Wilds. And that was really a, the, the major turning point of the, of the wilds. For three or four years before, I'd been working there, but I couldn't convince anybody, anybody to come. And then I showed them pictures of the wilds, owls in these trees, and then boom, they wanted to come. And that translates into Instagram and Facebook, et cetera. Um, and it, it becomes in a story in its, in its own right. Um, so the owl forest has become a, an attraction um, and that was so successful that then I started fundraising to do bigger sculptures, um, mm. which were easier to photograph because the trouble with owls high up in a tree is they're quite difficult to photograph. So then I did the big red kudu and the ostriches up at the top of the hill by the sundial, um, eventually the life-size giraffe. Um, there's also a bunch of mythical creatures. There's clip springers, monkeys, dakers. Also, it's about 100 sculptures now, all in all. Um, and, and the sculptures have become a visual language for the wilds and, and quite distinctive to, to this park. And they give people a reason not only to come to the wilds, but also a reason to explore further. Because when you've got a very forested park with lots of winding pathways, it's important to get people to move around all those pathways for the entire space to become used. Of any any dark corners, and the sculptures are strategically located so that they're at all different points that make people crisscross the park to go and see them and take photographs. Really, really great to to hear how that's worked so well. Um, you mentioned starting the f Facebook page. That's the Friends of the Wilds Facebook page, as I understand it. And you have a significant following, especially by South African terms of a public park. How, um, how did you start getting people involved or interested enough to spend more and more time there um, contributing to the work that you had started in the wilds? Can you tell me a bit about the process of building up the friends group um, and how the volunteers have worked in the, in the park? I think the friends group is a good example of listening to other people and, and not being too much of a lone ranger. Um, I realized a couple of years into my work there that I needed a lot more hands um, to help do the work. And I needed lots more people to come to the park for it to be relevant. Um, and I hadn't really thought about having our own social media. And a volunteer approached me and said that they would, if I would like 
set up a Facebook page. And, and I, I thought, well, it's a nice idea. We'll be lucky if we have 100 people join it. So I said, well, you know, go for it. You know, um, not going to say no. Let's just try it out. And here we are now a few years later with 10,000 members. And it's become a really dynamic social platform used by a wide variety of people. Um, many people use it to build their, their own events and their own followings through the wild, which I think is completely appropriate and positive. So we have uh, one guy, Kennedy Tembo, who leads um, what we call the Wise Wildies, who are seniors on a free walk every Tuesday morning. There's a lady who does fitness walks twice a week in the early morning. Uh, there's an, a lady who's doing groups for kids on the weekend. There's another lady who wants to start meditation classes. There's another guy, Arthur Lamini, who has meditation classes too. Um, lots of different ways the park is being used, and 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 they use the Facebook group to access their audience. Um, and people use it to share their experiences of the wilds. Um, so it's it's very positive, and and sometimes those experiences might be negative. You know, there there you know have been some negative incidents over the years, um, and those then get reported on the page, and people are informed about what's going on. Um, so it, it helps to build community awareness of of, of a range of issues. Um, and I've been using it more recently for fundraising, um, having a, a a base of park users like that, and well to talk to them is, is important um, and also to share with them the importance of contributing financially because without uh, donations we can't we can't do the work that we do. Certainly and that does seem to be the trend with many successful parks that the users of those spaces are able to um, contribute to the success of that space. In terms of your fundraising process for those who would be interested to uh, follow suit um, what are some of the the things that seem to work well? I know that it's perhaps specifically linked to uh, people who frequent the wilds. What are the some of the things that are that work well in terms of fundraising? And um, how do you manage oversight with that? Um, fundraising is one of those challenging things. Um, I just try to keep people's awareness up about it the whole time, so they realise that there is a, a need. Um, and people randomly give money. We have a snap scan code on the map at the entrance and we put out regular messages about it. Um, and it, that gives us a, a, a kind of a trickle of funding. Um, every now and then we'll have a, a generous funder who will say, listen, I've, you know, I'd like to make a proper contribution to what you're doing. And, and really those are the people that, that keep us going. Um, Every year or two, I do a crowdfunding campaign. We're busy with one now using Thunder Fund. And I think that's, that's always a good idea for any kind of community project like this because a crowdfunding platform makes payment easier. People can access it from around the world. It's, the, the important thing is to give people rewards for donating. So this time we're doing a raffle and I've given away a bunch of artworks as rewards both for people buying a raffle ticket and they can buy artwork directly. Um, and other park users have, have contributed prizes too. And yeah, you know, we'll, we'll keep on doing that. Each time I do a crowdfunding 
campaign, we raise usually about sort of 70 to 100,000 Rand. Um, and so that's, you know, that's worthwhile. I mean, you spend it much quicker than you think you will. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, what thing goes wrong with the water features and the 30 grand down the, down the sink. So um, it sounds like a lot of money, but it can be spent too easily. Um, so yeah, the, the fundraising is, 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 is all important because that's what, what enables us to do more work. Um, and although volunteers are important to the process and, and, and I welcome them with open arms, um, volunteers tend to dip in and out of a project. So they don't have the, the capacity or the knowledge to do longer term projects. Um, for that, you need somebody who's dedicated and can work every day and has specific knowledge, for example, about fixing pipes or stopping water erosion or planting bulbs, whatever it is, that you need somebody who's been trained up to do that. Um, and that, that means paying them. Tell me, tell me, James, in terms of the accountability side of things, one question I get sometimes is, um, do we open a bank account and then does do we give signing powers to multiple people? In your um, experience in the wilds, has it? What is the structure that you use? How does that reporting process work so that it's it's transparent? So we've shifted from being the original agreement where I adopted um, the wilds was just between me as a private citizen and the park. And now the agreement that we're working on together with City Parks is one where we, as the Friends of the Wilds Foundation, works together with other nature reserves, um, Kliprofiersberg, Klofendal and others, um, and City Parks. So we all work together. We, we, we have an MOU together, which, which not like regulates, but more like sets out a way for us to all work towards common objectives. And then we each have a nonprofit, and so we've set up one now for the wilds. Um, and the nonprofit organisation has its own bank account, has trustees, um, does its annual reporting to SARS and all that. So we've 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 grown up now into a, into a more proper body. Um, it's a little bit confusing that whole process of setting up a nonprofit, um, but the easy way to do it is to set up a voluntary association. And we did that initially, and that can be done without any kind of registration. You simply sign an agreement um, between you as the trustees, and then you can take that to the bank and open an account. We've since gone further than that in terms of registering a, a proper nonprofit organization and registering the SARS. Um, that takes more time and, and more bucks, um, but that's kind of the next level. And I think it is important for organizations like this to be transparent and sort of you know questions can be answered if it's only one one person it, it puts an awful burden on that person to have to now account to a, a broader community which they can't define anyway um, yes. and if money did, did go missing which may not even be their own fault then they'd be the ones who get blamed for it which isn't necessarily fair and often I think the the enthusiast who takes on fixing up something like a park is a is a bit of a greenie somebody who like wants to get involved with plants and nature they're not necessarily good at admin and so it's very helpful for that person to have some other trustees who can who can support them with the with the admin side of things um and kind of ease ease the pressure of that one person so they can they can do what they're good at
Coming, coming back to the idea to link up with a variety of other groups involved uh, in nearby parks, um, how, how did that go? Um, did it take a long time to establish a willingness with those mature groups that were already running that and it was easy to link up with them? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, we all have such similar goals and such similar frustrations um, that there's a there's a, a very strong synergy um, with with what we all do. Um, I've also had informal linkages with with other parks and reserves around the country, more just kind of like sharing tips and knowledge. Um, but the nature reserves, which also fall under Jaburg City Parks and are in the city. We, we we deal with very much the same challenges and it makes a lot of sense for us to to share tips and also for us to be stronger if we all stand together then we have more lobbying power otherwise what i found a few times in the past is that if i come under fire from the authorities it's just me standing on my own that's not a nice place to be um when your authorities have law firms and huge resources behind them it can be a bit scary so to have a network and we all stand together that's a much better place to be tell me james if you were to look forward into the future in the next five or ten years for the wilds what what is your dream for that space the wilds is joburg's premier park um excluding the walter sicily botanical gardens and that that is different to the wilds because that falls under Sandby, so it's a it's a national resource. Um, but in terms of the city's parks, the wilds is far and away the most exciting, has the widest variety of plants, the most interesting topography, the, the greatest resources in terms of pathways and greenhouse facilities and, and all these things. And for me, it's simple. The, the wild should should take its place as being the premier park in the city, and and really should aspire to being the Kirstenbosch of Joburg. And I really hope that city parks can start to share that vision um, and 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 invest in it. Um, and I think then they would have a real flagship park, which they they lack at the moment. It's an incredible ambition, and if you think of the journey that uh, you've uh, taken and, you know, first going into that park in 2014, discovering uh, it as a rather overgrown uh, wild environment and um, and its transformation through your involvement and the involvement of others is really commendable and very encouraging to, uh, to many of us involved in these uh, municipal green spaces. James, before we finish off, I would like to ask you, um, in terms of uh, an inspiring book or a book that you found valuable in the last six to 12 months, um, is there something that you would suggest we pick up? Gosh, now you're putting me on the spot because I've got to think about what I've read. Um, <laughs> well, a, a book somebody gave me a little while ago after she read my story on Facebook about the park was The Secret Garden. Um, and that's, that's a, a lovely book to read. And I find I kind of resonated a lot with some of the stories in that um i think that probably be my recommendation it's a wonderful book just to wrap up james i want to say thank you for coming on i've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today and i think others will also have gotten a lot from the conversation 
Before you go, though, where can listeners find out more about you and your work and your work in the wilds? My work as an artist is on my website, which is delaney.co.za, D-E-L-A-N-E-Y. And the wilds, I would suggest join the Friends of the Wilds Joburg page on Facebook. Um, that's has a wonderful and very uplifting feed of stories and explorations and people discovering joy in nature, um, which is lovely to see. Great. Fantastic. Well, we will have that all linked up in the show notes at Places Plus. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Places Plus podcast. For more episodes and to subscribe, rate and leave a review, head on over to Spotify. And if you want to develop an influential and profitable approach to public and shared spaces, learn more about our methodologies at placesplus.co.za.